411Live. Well, you can learn about issues that affect us every day. Stay the world Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your Live. Think about this. You have two men arrested, same crime. One is able to post bail and resumes normal life. The other is unable to come up with the money for bail. So he sits in jail for weeks, possibly months, waiting for a trial. Hello, everyone. I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. You might think you have an idea where I'm going with this story, this scenario. But oh, wait, there's so much more to it. And joining me to talk about all of this, I have Jeremy Cherson, and he is the Senior Policy Advisor at the Bail Project. Welcome to you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here because we have so much to talk about. You know what I'm talking about, that whole scenario and everything, and I'm sure it has people thinking. And The Bail Project is described as combating mass incarceration by disrupting the money bail system one person at a time. Elaborate on that. Well, I think it's a good place to start by just talking about how, and many people know this already, the U.S. incarcerates more people on the than almost any other country on the planet. Majority of those people, the vast majority of those people are detained pre-trial having not been convicted of any crime. And 75% of those people are people who can't be released because they don't have money to pay bail. So these are people who not only haven't been convicted of anything, are being held in jail. We know that jail conditions are very problematic. And it's because they just can't pay a certain amount that's set against them. And this happens for very low amounts of money often. The issue with jail is very complex. You know, there are many negative aspects of being detained pretrial, which we can get into. But I would just say, like, the bail project recognizes the harms that jail creates, recognizes the injustice of the money bail system. And so we operate what we call a revolving bail fund with a model that we call community release support. So that means that we survey clients based on their needs and decide to pay bail for them based on whether they meet certain criteria. And then Once they're released, we just offer support, you know, and this upends the system of money bail, which we can talk about. Right. Okay. So you have given me a broad view of that and great. And we're going to kind of dissect a lot of what you just said. So with the bail project, why don't you kind of give me go back to the scenario that I gave or a case that may come to mind of how it looks, how it works. Give us a visual, uh, a personalization of this process. Yeah, I can talk to you about this young man named Ramel. He's a 32-year-old father Mm -hmm. who was in the Bronx, was out in the morning going to get uh, some milk, riding his bike, and was stopped by police, asked them why he was being stopped. An argument ensued. He was then eventually charged with riding his bike on a sidewalk, which is really minor, wow. and resisting arrest. Was brought to court. Bail was set against him. It was set at $500. Couldn't pay it. And so went to this terrible, you know, New York City prison system is, is a problem. New York City jail system, rather. And one of the jails he went to is a floating barge on the East River. It's literally a floating jail. He was there for a week. 
not able to pay. And at this time, the bail project was known as the Bronx Freedom Fund. Mm -hmm. It was a charitable bail system, bail fund, and we paid the $500 bail. He got out, was able to be reunited with his daughter and, you know, did not have to take a charge or plea to get out. And but his case was ultimately dismissed. These are the kinds of things that happen if you let people stay in jail. They will inevitably plead to crimes that they haven't committed because they just want to get out of the terrible conditions that are there. And so we avoided that with him. That's wonderful. You know, I was looking up different things and I saw this quote from Robin Steinberg, who is the CEO of the Bail Project. And it said, the U.S. incarcerates more people per capita than almost any nation in the world, which is what you kind of mentioned. And it says, but on almost any given night in America, almost half a million people go to sleep in those concrete jail cells who have not been convicted of anything. Mm-hmm. To put a number on that, that's a half a million people. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Yeah. Do you think that the bail system has become to the point where it discriminates against the poor? Absolutely. I mean, this is a system that was initially created as a form of conditional release, which means, you know, give somebody some skin in the game, but set bail at an amount that people can afford to pay. And then, you know, they will turn to court and they'll care that they need mm-hmm. to get whatever amount of money back. But it was never meant to be this thing that led to preventative detention or that led to people being held in jail because they couldn't afford to pay. That wasn't what it was designed to do. It's why we're seeing so much of a bail reform effort happening across the country that is trying to get rid of cash bail and trying to institute other forms of conditional release. There are many other forms that don't have to do with making it about money. And for sure, it discriminates and is more problematic for people who can't afford to pay. Right. And then when you talk about people who can't afford to pay and they have to sit in jail, when you think about all the other consequences of that, like the person that you mentioned, he was in jail for a week for riding his bike on the sidewalk. Mm. (laughs) And you talk about like somebody could lose their job. They could lose their house. There are so many things that can snowball in this scenario, right? For sure. I mean, you're right about employment. And we're talking about people that are already generally living in poverty. So employment, you know, being fragile to begin with, losing housing, creating housing instability, potentially threatening immigration status, Mm -hmm. potentially threatening parental custody. I mean, those are those are things that are real. Sexual victimization in jail tends to happen within the first three days. Uh, Most jail deaths, including suicides, happen within the first week. And then jail has this sort of criminogenic effect, which means that people that are there versus people that are not there, same criteria, same Mm -hmm. backgrounds and everything. If you are held in jail, even for more than 24 hours, your chances of getting out or being charged with another crime is much greater. So that, you know, that's a really problematic aspect of this too. Yeah. And you know, when we were talking the other day, you mentioned something too, the effect on children. Mm. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, well, Ramel's story is a good story of being a father to a young child. And the many children, whether, you know, they may be exposed to a parent's involvement with the law enforcement officials, Mm -hmm. law enforcement officials, not necessarily the most considerate or compassionate people. And I think for a child who might witness something like that, it can be extremely traumatic. Just the fact that their parents disappear for a period of time is hard for a child to understand. Psychologists talk about something called ambiguous loss, which means you just don't understand somebody's there and then they're not there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it can be really, really destabilizing for children, for sure. 
Absolutely. When you talk about the bail project and the National Revolving Bail Fund, I, I think is the correct title for the fund. Explain the revolving part. Yeah. So the revolving part works that, you know, the first thing that I think we need to say is for the major- vast majority of our clients, they return to court without having any kind of collateral on the line. So mm-hmm. we pay bail for them and they still return to court. Across the country at, at uh, our about 25 sites that we have, 95% of the time, our clients return to each of their court appearances. Oh, that's a good it completely, Yeah, it completely blows up the idea that you need to pay your own money to make sure that somebody returns to court. And um, so seeing success rates like that means that people complete their cases, bail is returned to the bail fund at the end. You know, bail is only forfeited if somebody doesn't show up for their court dates. And because we're seeing such high success rates, the money goes back in fund, and then we continue to cycle it and be able to release other people. Okay. Then you were mentioning earlier the other leg to this, the Community Release with Support Program. So this is after a person has been bailed out, right? And you guys continue to work with that person. How does that work? Exactly. Well, I think there's a, so our community release with support model includes several different types of interventions. A key one of it, a key intervention that we use is court reminders that Mm -hmm. are usually in the form of text messages, but it's just simply reminding people that they have a court date coming up uh, has been shown statistically in many studies to increase a person's likelihood of appearance at those future court dates. So it's a simple, easy fix. And we issue court reminders to just make sure people are aware of what's happening. We also offer travel assistance in the form of like lift rides and when to make sure that the challenges of uh, in the logistics of going to court are reduced. So we'll give people rides. And that's really different. You know, we don't only work in major urban cities. We work in the South and places that are much more rural. And in those rural places, it can be much more challenging to get to court easily. So that's another intervention that we use. And then we do a needs assessment for each of our clients to try to determine what kind of a help they might need, what kind of service referrals we can connect them with. So if somebody needs employment assistance, we'll find that out. Somebody needs mental health services or behavioral health services, substance use counseling, we can connect them to people to help with that kind of thing too. So that's the kind of model we call, we talk about wraparound services. You know, mm-hmm. you need to holistically address a lot of um, people's unmet needs. There's even just you know medical needs, physical health needs that people don't address that can become prohibitive and make it more difficult for somebody to return to court. But by addressing these underlying factors, we're increasing the likelihood that somebody comes to court and uh, and really just gets what they need so that they don't have to become justice involved in the future. Wow, that is huge. That's a lot of stuff. And I think you know just the simple thing of transportation can be huge because if a person has to be in court a certain day and they don't have transportation, you know, that that hurts them tremendously. So on the case that you referenced, I think his name was Ramel. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how he was wrapped around, so to speak? Well, I think at that time it was earlier in our model. And mm-hmm. so we weren't providing that kind of services. But, you know, we've we've served 15,000 clients to date at this point. And Fif- so many of 15,000. I just want to make that clear. 15,000. Yeah. Okay. Across the country. Yeah. Okay. And those 15,000 clients have been, have received a lot of services, you know, whether it's substance use counseling or, um, you know, mental health services, employment assistance. 
it's just very common at this point that we are doling that out regularly and really working to optimize the model. And another thing that's important aspect of this work mm -hmm. is some of the places that we work in, you know, we are limited by the social services that are available in those places. And so we really need to do a lot of policy and advocacy work with local governments or state governments to make sure that these supportive services are available in the first place. You know, housing assistance is commonly requested by many of our clients, but housing assistance is very expensive for governments to provide. And when you see governments allocating a lot of money to things like law enforcement, but not providing services like necessary social services like housing or employment assistance or mental health or behavioral health services, this is what happens. It makes the justice system involvement the inevitable um, you know, outcome for so many people because we, are, we, we have all these policy failures that are happening along the way. If we were providing for the needs of the people in community to begin with, the likelihood of justice involvement, I think, would just decrease significantly. You're seeing a lot of criminal justice reform efforts working in that direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where is this being done? Where is what being done? The whole project, the bail project. Where are you now? We're, yeah, so we're in, we're in 25 different jurisdictions, at least 25. And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, rapidly growing. The organization is about two or three years old at this point. And oh, it's um, still a baby. <laughs> yeah, it's very new. And, you know, and working within a new organization and trying to have these kinds of high impact services is um, uh, it's just a wonderful process to be a part of. You know, you really get to help build this and optimize the services and work with um, governments. You know, we are, we are trying to put ourselves out of business. That is the goal that we have. We do not want to institutionalize bail funds in the places that we work. Mm -hmm. We want to show that cash bail is not necessary for people to return to court. And we want to show that these community release with supports um, is viable and can work and, you know, convince governments and other stakeholders to invest in that kind of thing. Yeah, because I'm thinking Milwaukee would be a great place for this project because we uh, we have a high incarceration rate in some of our poverty stricken areas. And I'm sure that a lot of people run up against this, you know, a $500 cash bail. But if you don't have that money, you can't make it. So you sit in jail. And I can see that happening over and over again here. What would be the steps that we might take to make it happen here? I think, you know, I can try to connect people with the um, our operations team mm -hmm. who's responsible for prospecting. A lot of the prospecting work, as I understand it, you know, examines a variety of criteria. You know, we need to make sure that it's legally possible for us to operate funds in these places. There's a lot of laws that are being rolled out uh, or not rolled out, but bills that are being attempted to undermine and prevent charitable bail funds from operating in certain places. There's a lot of regressive lawmaking happening currently. And charitable bail funds like the Bail Project are sometimes subject to attack. I think that's partially a result of a predatory bail uh, bonds lobby trying to make sure that they continue to have a stranglehold on a market that they don't want to lose um, a hold of. But with regard to figuring out where we set up, mm -hmm. you know, we're looking at a variety of criteria. We need to make sure that the jails that we can work in are accessible. We need to make sure that the population that we could serve is accessible. And then we just look to make sure that we are spreading ourselves uh, across the country ge geographically in a way that makes sense. You know, we work in 
urban places, and then we also work in rural places because you know we're really trying to test this hypothesis and wanting to work in as many places that are different from one another as possible so that we can say, yes, it works in large cities, it also works in small right. cities, and it also works in rural places. Diverse areas. I understand that. Hey, Jeremy, we're going we're gonna to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk about a little more about the bail project. Hey, stay with us. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. I have a mentor, and she convinced me to continue my education. No one receives a diploma alone. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Welcome back to the 411 Live. We are talking about the, the bail project. And Jeremy, I would like to talk a little bit more about the ramifications of not having that money to post bail. And I'm thinking about, you know, if a person is stuck in jail and they know they have all these responsibilities and then somebody comes to them and says, you know, if you would just plead to a lesser crime or, you know, do this plea bargain, you can get out. And they know that they did not do the crime, but they need to get out. So kind of talk about the plea bargain and how it is, you know, fitting into this uh, disparity issue. Yeah, I, I think like it's very important point that you're raising. And the truth is that many people are being accused of crimes that are ultimately dismissed if they were able to take it to trial, you know, go through that process and, you know, see it through so that it shakes out. And you see very high rates of dismissal. And so when people are detained, the stress of incarceration, and the trauma of incarceration, the separation from family, mm -hmm. the separation from employment, all the things that become consequential, any reasonable person is going to take a plea because they want to go home and not be in that terrible place. It's very hard to withstand that. You know, you do hear sometimes stories of people who have just continued to ride it out, you know, tragic stories like Khalif Browder's story is one where I think if we were operating at the time, he would have been released. You know, he didn't have a high bail set against him, but just couldn't pay bail. Mm -hmm. Wound up being completely traumatized by being incarcerated and ultimately took his life in the future. You know, and that story, you know, is, is just emblematic of how tragic incarceration can be. You are seeing people being pressured by their public defenders, being pressured by a DA to take a deal that means that they're accepting a conviction to a misdemeanor or a felony that will follow them around for their entire life. It will impact them in terms of what employment they can get. It might impact their housing. The collateral consequences of convictions are substantial and far-reaching. And this is what's happening because people are just not able to be out during the pendency of their case. So if you pay bail, if you can afford to pay bail, you can ride it out. You can work with your attorney, assuming you can afford one or assuming your public defender is good and move that to trial and potentially move towards a dismissal that if you've been charged with a crime that you haven't committed, you know, would be better to see that merited out in a just way rather right. than just taking the conviction. Yeah. That makes me think of a scenario where you have, you know, a couple of guys who are arrested for something. And in this case, 
they're innocent. I mean, they didn't do the crime, but they're arrested. And they are in jail. They cannot post bail. So they sit there. And then they are given the opportunity to make a plea bargain. You've got two who say, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm innocent. I'm not going to do it. And then you have another who says, you know, I really need to get out of here. I've got a job. I can't lose it. I've got these responsibilities. So I'm going to plead. And he does. And then time goes on. The case falls apart. They're not prosecuted. The charges are dropped. So the other two, you know, they're gone. They're out. They're doing their lives. But the person who pled in this plea bargain, they're stuck with that, right? It's not like that's oh, sure. going to go away. Mm-hmm. That's so, the deal. Yeah, that's the plea deal that they're taking. I mean, it's part of the whole plea process is getting prosecutors to get their convictions. And once you've gotten that conviction, as far as I understand, I'm not a lawyer, but mm-hmm. as far as I understand, the legal process to undo a conviction like that is probably a long, long, long shot. Yeah. You were you mentioned some numbers earlier. Tell me again, how successful is this national revolving bail fund program? Right. So, I mean, we are seeing nationally, we are seeing our clients return to 95% of their court dates. It's a really, really high number, totally worthy of praise. Yeah. And you were mentioning a lot of times the cases are actually dismissed. You know, they don't have to go back. That's right. I think this might be a good time to talk about how bail is supposed to be used and what the Constitution says about how bail is supposed to be used. You know, bail is supposed to be used when there's an imminent identifiable threat to a person or persons or when there is a identifiable risk that somebody will willingly flee prosecution. We're seeing the use of things like risk assessment tools that are becoming used Mm -hmm. as like a potential remedy to some of these problems. You know, risk assessment tools are not a panacea that will cure all of these problems. Risk assessment tools are extremely biased. Not to wander too far along in this conversation, but I'm just saying like bail is not being set along the conditions and terms that most constitutions require. Bail hearings are super quick. Many times people are not even represented by an attorney when they're there for a bail hearing. They don't have a chance to present a affirmative defense of why they should be released to community. So there's a lot of failures of the criminal legal system that lead to the necessity of something like the bail project. This is a desperate intervention. This is something that shouldn't exist, but we are operating because the system is failing people in many, many ways. And we're trying to work both to improve and uh, operate a very successful model, which we're seeing merited out, but also to work to achieve the kind of systemic change that we're looking for so that we can put ourselves out of business. Right. And I know you're innocent until proven guilty. I know that's there. But, you know, there are some crimes that are so horrific that you think, oh, I want a really high bail. I don't want this person to get out. You know, I'm fearful. That goes into it, too, right? Well, I want to push back a little bit to say what we default to saying Mm-hmm. There should be a high bail set. That's not the solution to a problem where somebody is actually substantially dangerous and it present in an obvious way that would hold up in court, you know, that if they were released, it would be very dangerous. So should in those it, cases, should it be no bail? Yeah, which exists in some places. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of preventative detention, 
But even that kind of thing should only happen after an adversarial hearing taking place. There shouldn't be opportunities where people do not have, are not represented by a defense attorney and a judge is almost unilaterally making these decisions for people because of the harms that we're seeing about jail and pretrial detention. So, you know, I think that those are options to consider. There are other options to consider that could mitigate factors. This is generally supposed to be a stepwise approach. Mm -hmm. You know, conditions of release can be set and they should be the least restrictive that they can be until, you know, to, to remedy the problems of public safety concern and risk of flight. And that doesn't always mean that somebody needs to be preventatively detained. That's going to be the rare, rare exception to most cases. But we do also have a society and a media that can be a bit fear-mongering about crime. And I think that's because individual perceptions of crime and fear of crime, this is shown statistically and in studies across the country, they're greater than the actual reality and, and actual threat of crime and yeah. crime victimization. So I, we have I to push that. back against that stuff. You know, mm -hmm. it's and, and the idea of cash bail, like let's say you set a $300,000 bail against somebody who's very dangerous. That's not going to solve the problem if that person has $300,000 to pay that bail. They can be released and they can do whatever we're expecting to do. That's why the courts don't want to go through this whole process of hearings. And I think it's a kind of a ruse and not really true that, you know, they're concerned that it would gum up the works, that it would take forever to have these hearings. But it's not true. If you start releasing people more, you won't have these overburdened court calendars, these, you know, really busy, overstuffed courts. There will be less cases happening and you have time to have these hearings. That mm -hmm. you have. Yeah. I also keep thinking about, I was a TV journalist and I covered a lot of court cases and you would have people who were out on bail who posted and they had been out resuming their normal lives working, uh, if there was a drug issue, maybe getting drug help and taking care of their family and all these kind of things. So when they came into court, they, they looked nice. They had their shirt, their tie. They looked presentable. Then you had the person who was unable to post the bail because they didn't have the money. And they're coming in with the orange jail outfit, handcuffs. They sit down and the handcuffs are removed. The hair is kind of over the all over the place. And I just think it's it's perception, whether it's a, a judge or the jurors. And then the other thing is the person who was out on bail, his attorney can say, look, my defendant, he's been working his job, he's getting treatment, he's outstanding community, you know, citizen, all these things. And of course, the judge is going to look at that. So then, you know, it's so unbalanced, right? It's very unbalanced and it plays itself out. You know, people who are detained pretrial have negative, have worse outcomes than people who are released, like you're saying, probably for the reasons that you're outlining. You know, people who are det detained pretrial are more likely to have a jail sentence at the end of their case than people who are released. They're more likely to have longer jail sentences than people who are released. And black and brown people are more likely to be detained pretrial than white people just across the board. So you're right that if people are in community, they can get the services that they need. There's no one going and saying, oh, you know, I, I, they will probably make case that people who are in jail, you know, they're, they're participating in certain services. But it's not the same thing right. as people who are demonstrating that they're OK, that nothing crazy is happening. You know, it, it's, it, it, yeah, it's frustrating to talk. Jeremy, we could talk forever about this, but our time is up. But I want to make sure that 
um, I let people know because they're listening to this and they're thinking, this makes total sense. I would like to contribute to the fund or they might want to get more information about how to get that project in their communities. What do they need to do? Yeah, well, I would definitely make a pitch that people should watch Robin Steinberg's TED Talk on this issue. It's wonderful. We also have a document on our website, which is bailproject.org, where you can read it. It's called After Cash Bail. It outlines our entire vision for the future of a system that doesn't include cash bail. And you can reach out to me if you want. Um, I think you guys might have my contact information. Mm -hmm. You can contact us on our website as well. Very good. Jeremy, thank you so much. I see the bail project is leveling the playing field, which is so important. So thank you for all of your work. This is uh, Jeremy Churchland, and he is the senior policy advisor at the bail project. Thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. Remember, we're a nonprofit organization, so if you'd like to become a sponsor or help us in any way, go to our website, 411live.org. Until next time, I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org.